Now, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He talked about in a, gra- in a great house, there's many vessels, some for honor and some for dishonor. And he goes on to say, anyone who will cleanse himself from dishonor can become a vessel of honor. When he talks about vessels, I, mean, I don't know about you, but when I think of the English word vessel, I think of ship. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, as we have the image up there, jars of clay. Because this is what they did. They didn't have Tupperware in the first century. And so what they did instead was they would carry, they would keep all their household goods in these jars of clay. And they would all look pretty much the same. They're very common. Uh, they would use the, the most uh, inexpensive uh, kind of available material, which was clay. And, and what would happen was, depending on, on, if you looked at the jars from the outside, they would all look the same. You would think, okay, these are all just common clay jars. But if it was a vessel of honor, it was a vessel of honor because what was in it was honorable. If it was a vessel of dishonor, it was a dishonorable vessel because of what was in the vessel. So in other words, some vessels were used as toilets, sorry, and some vessels were used to store jewelry and important documents. And so it wasn't the vessel that was so crucial as what was stored in the vessel that made it honorable or dishonorable. And we just read in verse 7 where Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And the earthen vessels he's talking about is it are himself. He's talking about people, believers in Jesus specifically, because that's what we are. We're jars of clay. We're clay pots. Most of our, us are also crack pots. And we are we are jars of clay. We're common, everyday, normal. That's what we are. And so he's talking about this reality of there's this treasure in this earthen vessel. And God has done this. God has put this grand treasure in common earthen vessels because he wants to show something of himself. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, for you guys who were here two, two weeks ago when Adam taught through chapter 3, he talked about how the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant. How the New Testament, what God's done through Jesus, is so much more glorious than what we saw through Moses. Now, when we talk about Old Testament or Old Covenant, we're talking about all these things that happened that are recorded from Genesis through Malachi. Okay, And what we know about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was that through the Old Covenant, someone could come to saving faith. In other words, God gave enough information about himself and about what he required people to trust him for, that they were saved or they were made right with God in the same way we would be made right with God, by faith or through faith. But the problem was, though they could be made right with God, they could be forgiven of their sins, they they wouldn't know what freedom from sin was. That's something that happens through the new covenant, this glorious new covenant. And so Paul had talked about it in chapter 3, just about how amazing it is, how great it is, this, this new covenant, this truth that comes through Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he taught. And so we pick it up in in chapter 4 when he says, since we have this ministry, he's referring to that, this ministry of the new covenant. We have this, this job, you might say, this responsibility to serve people by sharing with them who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And he says in the first few chapters here, he makes the first few verses here, he makes it really clear that when he, in having this ministry, it wasn't something that he was going to shrink back from. 
In other words, even though him sharing who Jesus was was causing him to suffer in some pretty great ways, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But even though he was caused, being caused great suffering, he wasn't going to shriek back. In fact, what it says in verse uh, when it says in verse 1 uh, that we do not lose heart, the, the, that phrase lose heart, would, could literally be translated, we will not surrender in cowardice. We're not going to shrink back like we're afraid. Like, oh, okay, I won't say anything else. He says, no way. Paul refused, listen, to back away from the message. In fact, well, here's what he said. Notice what he said in, uh, in verse 2, where he talks about that he was not, uh, they were renouncing the hidden shames, uh, things of shame. In other words, he wasn't living a double life. He had integrity in his life. He says, we weren't walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. And he's kind of comparing himself to false teachers that were going to Corinth and trying to confuse the Corinthians. But it's interesting, again, that word deceitfully means to water down. It's a word that was used for wine merchants who would try to make more money off their wine by adding a lot of water to it. They would water it down. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, look, we will not water down the message. You know why? Because Jesus is the message. And listen, Jesus is the treasure. He's the treasure. And he said, look, he's the treasure. Therefore, I refuse to water down who he is. Now remember, he just talked about in chapter 3 how glorious this new covenant is, how glorious, how amazing it is, how life-changing it is that Jesus, who was who is God become man, walked on this earth a perfect life, died a death that paid for our sins, and rose from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was. And how that truth, who he is, sets us free. Paul says, I can't shrink back from that. I can't shrink back from the fact that at the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. I'm not going to water that down. I can't pull back, Paul would say, from the reality that Jesus is alive. It's not just some metaphor for a new chance of life. Jesus is alive, as a, more alive than you and I are right now. And, and he says, I won't pull back from that because he's this treasure. In fact, he says later on in verse 3, notice he says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind, the God of the sage, it's another phrase for Satan or demonic powers, who the God of the sage has blinded. Notice it says, who do not believe. Now, we read this and it might kind of sound like, oh, wow. The devil's blinding all these people and they're all victims and they can't see. They just can't see. But actually what he says here, when he says those who do not believe, it's a very strong word. It's, it's those who are actively disbelieving. It's, the, it's like, the, it's, it's like when you're, you're kind of trying to discipline your toddler and you're saying, okay, look at me. Look at me. And they're like going, no. Look at me. I want to talk to you. No. They're not blind except willfully. They refuse to look. Well, what, the, what Paul's saying here is, look, he has this great message. He won't water down. He says, as he preaches this message, he said in verse 2, he's commending himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, no one would, would, would be able to accuse him of watering it down. Everyone would say, well, he's us, telling us who Jesus is. He's saying, but listen, just because people don't believe in the gospel I preach doesn't mean that the gospel is not true. It means they're just refusing to believe. That's the hard thing about knowing Jesus and following Jesus is because once you know Jesus, you realize what a treasure he is. And you don't get it. It's hard for us to go, how come people won't believe? 
But we have to remember we were all once like that. I remember what it was like. I remember being 17, 18 and making fun of Christians. The guys I tried to intimidate, the girls I tried to pick up on. And I remember thinking, these guys are crackpots. <laughs> They're nuts. Why, why would they believe this stuff? It just seems weird. And, and, and Paul's saying, look, it's not the gospel that's weird. It's the fact that they're blind to how valuable Jesus actually is. In fact, Paul describes this as what? That he, he says that he's the image of God in verse 4. In other words, we know what God's like because we see Jesus. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, he says, look, we're not going to preach ourselves. We're going to preach Christ. Now, I want to be really clear. If you don't get anything else from today's message, get this. Nobody here wants you to follow Servants Church. Nobody here wants you to follow any church. What Paul talks about is what we want to talk about. We're wanting you to know who Jesus is and to follow Him. Paul says, we're not preaching ourselves. We're preaching Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and the truth is, we're just your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We just want to serve you so you can know Jesus. In fact, look, look at what he says in verse 6. Notice he says, For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in the hearts, shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do, do you see what Paul's doing? Paul's connecting Genesis chapter 1 with, with Jesus. He's connecting this fact that you read in the, book, uh, the beginning of the book of Genesis where God says, and let there be light, and there was light. That God created the world with his spoken word. God spoke things into existence. But he, he's equating that with coming to know Jesus. In other words, the same God who created light sent Jesus. The same creator of the universe sent Jesus. And, and we see Jesus, when we see him as he is, we see God as he is. And he's saying, this is why we want to preach him. The treasure is Jesus. It's him that we want to know. It's him that gives us value. In fact, that's what he gets at in verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure, this, this Jesus, this revelation of who God is through Jesus, in these earthen vessels. And, and this is important for us to recognize, okay? Is that it's God who makes us valuable. It's God who gives us value, not us who gives God value. We don't determine who God is. We don't determine what God is like. God is what He is. In fact, that's how He revealed Himself to the Israelites. When God first chose Israel to say, okay, I'm going to choose you as a nation to be a light to the rest of the nations. When He first chose them, and He says to Moses, He says, Moses says, well, okay, you want me to go tell the Israelites that you're their God and you're going to deliver them. What's your name? And He says, I am that I am. I'm the self-existent one. It's funny because sometimes people will say, yeah, but I, I don't believe in God. Well, we'll tell people about Jesus. It's like, yeah, well, I don't believe in God. Well, it doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Just because you don't believe in something doesn't mean he ceases to exist. Like, oh, poof, another fairy died. I don't believe in fairies. It doesn't work that way. It works that way with fairies, maybe, but it doesn't work that way with God. 
You can't just say, I don't believe in God, therefore he doesn't exist. The reality is he is who he is, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. But here's the great news. The great news is when he, when we come to see him as he is, we come to, to bow the knee to him as the one who died for us, as the one who forgives us, as the one who makes us able to have a relationship with God then we recognize what our value really is. I don't know if you know this or not, but most of our Western laws are based on Christian and Judeo ethics. And so the whole idea of thou shalt not murder comes from Scripture. And the whole foundation of that initial law, God gave that law even before he gave the law to Moses. This is in Genesis chapter 9. God says, look, if anybody kills, that person needs to be put to death. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. And so to destroy the image of God is wrong, God says. In other words, they have intrinsic value. People have intrinsic value because God made them in His image. But more than that, have you been esteemed by anybody else as highly as the gospel says you're esteemed by God? And when I say esteemed, I don't mean God looks at you and goes, what a great person you are. I mean, God says that I'm willing to sacrifice my son that you would come to know me. This is why Paul says, look, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're just clay pots, but God lets us be in this place. God lets us be these vulnerable, broken people so that as he comes into our life, people see how great he is, not how great we are. Now, Jesus is the treasure. And because he's the treasure, listen, this treasure gives meaning to our suffering. Paul goes on to say this. When he's talking about being a jar of clay or a treasure in earthen, or an earthen vessel, he is talking about being vulnerable and weak. These things are pretty easy to break. I don't know if you guys have anything ceramic. It breaks pretty easy, doesn't it? And so he's talking about the, the, easiest, uh, the, the ease in which we suffer. And so he's talking, talking about his own sort of experience, specific as his experience of someone sharing Jesus with people. He, here's how he describes it. He doesn't kind of mince words. He says, here's what we are. Here's what I've experienced, Paul would say. I'm hard-pressed. In other words, like, I, I've got all kinds of trials coming from every side. He says, I'm perplexed. I don't always get what's going on. Okay, God, what are you doing? Any Christians ever felt like that? God, what are you doing? Yeah? What are you doing? I don't understand. He says, listen, he says, I'm persecuted. That means people are pursuing my harm because I'm telling them about Jesus. They want to hurt me for that. He says, listen, I'm struck down. And the idea there is that he both, he's physically beaten up, he experienced that, but also it's this idea that he's just kind of cast aside, like you're not worth anything. Can you see if you're experiencing that, well, how much you realize, wow, so great, that even if I'm a jar of clay, I'm filled with the treasure of Jesus. But also look what he says. He says, yeah, that's my experience, but I might be hard pressed, but I'm not crushed. He says, I might be perplexed, but I'm not in despair. You know, I might be persecuted, but I haven't been forsaken by my God. I might be struck down, but I've not been destroyed. See, here's the reality, guys. It's not so much that that having Jesus in your life, having this treasure of Christ uh, as your Lord and Savior protects you from problems, but it does strengthen you through them. 
It's, it is kind of amazing how uh, sort of something flimsy, if it's filled to the max, pressurized, that thing becomes very difficult to break. So if you crush an aluminum can that's empty, it's easy. Anybody can do it, crush. Anybody can do that, right? Or a bottle of water. But if you fill that bottle full of water, I mean, until it's to, to the max, there's no air left in, there's a cap on it, and you try to squeeze it to break it, you'll see that plastic is pretty strong. Not because the plastic's strong, but what's in the plastic is keeping you from crushing it. And so Christ in us, when Jesus comes into our lives, it's not that he says, okay, no more trials for you, everything's going to be roses, it's going to be lovely. No, he doesn't promise that at all. But what he says is, look, you will be hard-pressed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, but you will not be crushed or in despair or forsaken or destroyed if you're walking with me. See, here's the, here's the reality. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, famous verse, a lot of you probably haven't even memorized, that all things work together for the good of those who are the called for those who love God. We have a guarantee as Jesus followers that no matter what kind of rubbish we go through, God's going to use it for good. Does that mean when we're going through it, it feels good? No. Does that mean everything that we go through is good? No. Does that mean that we automatically know how it's going to work for good? No. That's the perplexed bit. <laughs> but what it means is we have this promise that there's no pain without purpose for the one who follows Jesus. Now you think about that compared to someone who doesn't. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe there's a God who's sovereign, who loves you, who's working something good in your life, you know what your pain means? Possibly nothing. If you want to deny that God exists, if you want to say, no, he's not real, then what purpose is your pain? Oh, it makes me stronger. Does it always make you stronger? Does it always benefit you? Not necessarily. See, what, what Paul's talking about here is, is he's trying to combat this idea that was creeping into the Corinthian church, this idea that, hey, if you're going through a hard time, maybe God's not really with you. If your life is difficult, maybe you don't really know this Jesus like you say you do. And Paul's saying, no, no, that's not the way it works. God's not going to keep me from problems, but he's going to strengthen me through them. In fact, what he says in verses 10 to 12 is really interesting because you read this and you think, well, what's Paul trying to say? He says he's always caring about in the body, that's in his physical body, the dying of the Lord Jesus. In another uh, book, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, Paul says he dies daily. And what he means by that is that he's suffering in a way that Jesus suffered. Not in a way that pays for our sins, but in a way that was difficult, physically difficult. But he says, this is why, always caring about the inner body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Because this is the good news, right? Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He was resurrected. He goes on to say, listen, that their lives are always, he says, we, probably speaking of him and the other apostles, we're always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. In other words, our life is always fragile because we're following Jesus. But this is why that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, that people can see the reality of Jesus in our lives. So he says in verse 12, so then death is working in us, but life in you. In other words, listen, Paul's saying our suffering happened to benefit other people. 
Paul says we suffered because it gave credibility to the gospel. We suffered because it was bringing benefit to other people. Isn't this what we need to understand as Jesus followers? Because so often when we're suffering, we're only thinking about our own suffering. Ever thought maybe the reason God's allowing you to suffer is because it's going to benefit somebody else who's watching you? Or ever chosen to suffer on purpose so that you could benefit somebody else? Mom and dad give up things so they can get something nice for their kids. Husband does something he hates because he wants to, like shopping, because he wants to bless his wife. Not that I have personal experience of that, but... Now, here's the reality. The treasure that is Jesus gives meaning to our suffering. That we can know, listen, that our value is not based on our strength. We're just clay pots. Our value is based on Christ in us. We can know, listen, that God's not going to protect us from problems, but he's going to strengthen us through the problems. And we can know that God even wants to use our pain to benefit other people. Now, this last section, starting in verse 13. Paul's going to make the point really clear that this treasure is eternal. This is not just, hopefully you can get through life. This is something eternal. It's permanent. He says, and we have, and since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised Jesus up from, raised up Lord Jesus, excuse me, will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Now, Paul's obviously talking about the resurrection, the fact that Jesus was literally physically risen from the dead. That's historical testimony. That's what this book is about. It's not fairy tales or myths. It's historical testimony. The history points to the fact Jesus is alive. He says, since, since God raised him from the dead, we're confident, God, confident that God's going to raise us from the dead. Remember, we learned in the very first part of 2 Corinthians, where, where Paul says, look, we don't want you to be ignorant about our sufferings, but God allowed us to suffer so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In other words, look, we might die from these current sufferings, but it's okay. God's going to raise us from the dead. I mean, can, can we be honest? Isn't this one of the things that inspires us? We see somebody suffering to accomplish a goal, and we go, man, that's That's amazing. We get emotional. We think, yeah, we cheer on the team. Well, here's a reality. Paul's saying, listen, even if someone kills me, it's okay. Because since Jesus is risen from the dead, I am confident I'm going to be resurrected. Now, it's interesting here when he says uh, the same faith according to what was written, he's quoting Psalm 116, verse 10. And that psalm is a psalm written about the victory of someone who's been delivered from death, someone who has an enemy who wants to kill them, and then God came through and delivered him, so he writes this song of rejoicing. And it's interesting because that's what the, song, the, the psalm is about. And so in quoting it, he's saying, look, we have that same faith the psalmist had. The psalmist said, man, the difference would be the psalmist said, God has delivered us from death, and Paul's saying, God will deliver us from death. That even if we die, it's not the end. There's a resurrection. Someone once said, until you found something worth dying for, you're not really living. And I can't honestly, maybe I'm just too cynical, but I can't honestly think of anything worth dying for. I, I, I think instinctively I probably want to die for my family, my wife, or my children. I mean, I think that's the case. 
want to see them maybe live longer. But there's not really much else I can think of that's really worth dying for, at least especially not sort of suffering for long term. You know, kind of throwing yourself in front of a bus to save your kids. You might do that instinctively. But to kind of, you know, let the bus roll over you back and forth, you know. I don't think anyone's going to volunteer for that. Sorry, kid, you're on your own, you know. But there's this radical thing about the gospel of Jesus, this radical thing about following Jesus. We don't, we're not following an idea. We're following a living person. And that living person has promised that we would be resurrected. That it's not just this idea that, okay, here's some good moral teachings to live by. We're talking about life that lasts forever. And it's not just the quantity of life, how long it's going to last. It's the quality of life. We look at the life of Jesus. We look at how he loved people. We look at how he enjoyed what life was meant to be. We look at how he put others before himself. And we think, that's the way we should be, loving people that way. We, we see what he showed us about God and how loving God is. And we think, yep, that's the God we should follow and we should love God that way. And yet we still don't do it. But the promise of the resurrection, listen, is the promise that one day, listen, one day we're going to love each other as we're supposed to. We're going to love God as we're supposed to. That's the promise of the resurrection. And Paul's saying this is a, this is a, a brilliant thing. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 15, For all things are for your sake. Notice that grace having spread through many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, this reality of the resurrection, this, this, this sharing of the risen Jesus with people, this calling people to put their trust in him, a person, every time someone does that, grace spreads a little further. Do you guys know what grace is? Grace is, been once said, is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is often defined as unmerited favor, getting what you don't deserve, not... Mercy, mercy is not getting what you do, you do deserve. Mercy is when you should get punished, but you don't. So that's mercy. Grace is you should get punished, but instead you get rewarded. Man, how does that work? It works because of the merits of Christ, what Christ has earned on our behalf through his death, his life, his death, his resurrection. Grace. And grace is also this divine enabling. When God gives you the strength to do the things that he calls you to, that grace spreads. You see, because the, the, the treasure is eternal, God's still saving people. God's still calling people. Maybe he's calling you today. Maybe he's calling you today to put your faith in him. He goes on to say, we're almost done. Verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. Therefore, we don't shy away in cowardice. He says, even though our outward man is perishing, our bodies are falling apart, can I get a middle-aged amen? Yeah, it's more like a... <laughs> Even though our outward man is perishing, yet notice our inward man is being renewed day by day. Because the treasure is eternal, guess what? God's working something eternal in our life. Because Jesus is eternal. He's alive and he's living with us, via, living in us as believers via his Holy Spirit. Because it's a reality, God's doing something. He's changing us from the inside. He's, he's doing something to change us. 
even in our temporal pain, it's not just that other people benefit. God is using that pain to shape us. Do you know how clay pots are made? You get a lump of clay, you stick it on a wheel, it spins, 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 and you apply pressure. Isn't that what pain and trials are? Monotony and pressure. Monotony and pressure. Monotony and pressure. But what's he doing? He's forming us. Not into another clay pot, but into the image of Jesus. So even though our outward man, our clay pot is breaking up, he's forming something on the inside that's going to look like Jesus. Day by day. He says, notice, this is what he calls the, the problems and pain that he goes through. In verse 17, he calls them our light affliction, which is but for a moment. He says, this is what's working for us, a far more exceedingly eternal weight of glory. Paul's saying what God's preparing for us, what God's doing in us, makes the suffering go through in this life, light, temporary, easy. Now, we'll see later on in 2 Corinthians, when Paul describes the kind of stuff he went through, some pretty heavy stuff. In fact, when he talks about dying in, in, in his body, he sees, you see this in other of his letters where he talks about how he bears in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus in the words that he, he was beaten. I mean, Paul was one of these guys that it'll say later on in, in 2 Corinthians that he was, he was beaten with stripes. That means he was whipped until he had you know, his flesh opened up in his back. He was beaten with rods as well. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned to death. They hit him with rocks and thought he was dead. He, he, he had times when he had no food. He had times when he couldn't sleep. All that besides just the normal stress of being a sort of a traveling pastor. Paul says, temporary light affliction. Not even worthy to be compared to what God's doing in me. This is the glory of the treasure. Lastly, he says this, and while we do not look at the things, the word for look means we don't aim, it's not our goal. Or we don't look or make our goal at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Some of you today are too focused upon the fact that you're an earthen vessel. You think, I, I'm too broken. Uh, I've been filled with too much junk. There's no way God would ever put the treasure of his own son into my life. But the Bible says, in the book of Timothy, if anyone cleanses himself from dishonor, God will make him a vessel of honor. How do you do that? So we just said, you turn from your sin, you turn to God, and you say, God, forgive me. I believe Jesus died for my sins, and he will wash you clean and fill you with the Spirit of Christ. That's what he'll do. Some of you are thinking, you know, I might be a clay pot, but I'm a dang good-looking clay pot. And I'm sturdy. I think I'm a lot stronger than you think I am. Because I'm filled with self-will and strength. I won't crack easy. Well, one day you have to stand before God, as we all do. And when we stand before Him and we see Him in His goodness, we see Jesus as He is. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess He's Lord. Don't wait till then. 
Today's the day.